And if you would, please be turning open to Nehemiah chapter 8. Be looking at chapter 8 um, in its entirety as we've been trying to move through this series in Nehemiah in, in building healthy spirituality and what that means and looks like for us uh, as individuals, but also as a church. So if you would, follow along as I read God's word. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they, what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Medahiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, opened it all, when he opened it, as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Hamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hadiah, Maaseiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing already. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were described to them, declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy Trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. 
And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Holy Spirit, help us understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you came across this year, but every, at the end of every year, Merriam-Webster publishes what the word of the year is. I don't know if you saw this year, the word of the year is gaslighting. If you have a, a teenager in your house, you know that word. Also, gatekeeping is another very highly popular teen word. But gaslighting comes from a play from 1938, just entitled Gaslight, two words. Gaslighting is now one word. When a husband sought to convince his wife that she was crazy by adjusting the light, the gas of the lights in the house, and when he would adjust them, she would notice and mention about the difference, and he would act like they weren't changing, seeking to convince her that she was crazy. Now, it's become a a popular word in our present culture uh, to describe any type of manipulation. If you feel manipulated, then somebody's gaslighting you. But what Merriam-Webster was doing is saying, we need to adjust our definition in order to meet how the word is being used. And we know that through uh, language, etymology, the meaning of words changes. Like the word awful, we think bad. But the Puritans used the word awful as full of awe, as it was supposed to be. So how do you get awful as so awful? Weird how it changes, but it does. Words change, and the meanings of those, the definitions change. But what we're seeing in this chapter is just the opposite. God's word never changes. He has meant, he has recorded what he means, and he means what he says, and it's always going to mean that. So we have confidence in the word of God. Uh, Definitions of words change with our usage But God's word never changes. A familiar verse I'm sure you know is Isaiah 40, (coughs) verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Now, when we think of this, we're thinking of grass and flowers. But that's not exactly the context that Isaiah gave. He said, all flesh is like grass. People, men and women are like the grass and the flowers. They fade away, but what stands forever? God. So no matter what we think we can make God's word mean for us, it's going to end. <laughs> We're going to cease to exist on this earth. We will be judged. Whether We will be rewarded for our faith in heaven, trusting Christ's death for us in our place, or we will face his judgment forever in hell. He says... The grass, the flowers, those are like people. Men and women will come and go. And their ideas about who God is will come and go. And those will change. But God's word is trustworthy. Even Peter, the Apostle Peter quotes this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. The context is God's word standing and remaining as, as not the bi- backdrop with creation. It's people are the backdrop to God's word. Men and women will come and go. They'll have their thoughts. 
But Isaiah prophesied these words to a very complacent people. They just got used to things. Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, in the first parts of those prophecies in those books that we have in Scripture, he's prophet, those prophets are saying, why do you keep on bringing these sacrifices? Why do you keep on loving God? Think you're loving God by doing stuff when he doesn't want that anymore because you've lost a heart connection with him. And that's where this comes through as well. Isaiah is prophesying to a complacent people. They were God's people, and they were in God's place, but they had become callous to his presence. They didn't feel his presence anymore. Their trust was in what they could see. Their walls were intact around Jerusalem, and they trusted the fact that, no, these walls cannot. Jerusalem is set up high. And so when you have a wall around a city that is set up high, they were thinking, that's impenetrable. Nobody is going to overcome us. They got complacent in their false securities. And Isaiah is saying, but you're, you're trusting in what you see in a wall and the fact that maybe nobody has attacked you yet. But God doesn't have a heart connection with you. And that's what he's coming to remind you of. There's a heart connection with his word that we're supposed to maintain. And now in, in, in Nehemiah's story... The walls are rebuilt around Jerusalem, and they didn't want to make the same mistake they did before the exile, that they're trusting in just the, the temporal, the, the, the security of walls that are standing. Now the walls are back. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah and all the people are saying, all right, we don't want to make the same mistake of trusting in a wall that's rebuilt around us, and our heart connection with God is far from what he wants. They wanted the word of God to be central again. And set it high above their own lives and the people. For their own spiritual health, they wanted that. But listen, we need the same thing. For our spiritual health, we need the word of God to be central in order to feel its power. Now, I would say this. In order to feel his power. Because who's the word? Who's the word of God? John 1. Y'all know it. Jesus. Thank you. Jesus is the word. The word in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God, John 1, 1. He's the word. So we want to have him central so we can feel his power. What we see in this first section on, in chapter 8, uh, the very first, the, the first long paragraph, is that the word is treasured. And, <coughs> I'm sorry. And we see that it's treasured with the intentionality that the people came with. They gathered as one man. They wanted to gather together to say, Ezra, read us the law. We want to get this back central in our lives. Their hearts were unified to go before the Lord and respond to the Lord. There's intentionality in Ezra coming. We haven't heard about Ezra yet. We see Nehemiah interacting with rebuilding everything, but Ezra had come uh, about a decade before Nehemiah got to Jerusalem in order to help the people understand the law. He's a Levite who studied the word. And he's reading the word because the word of God being read aloud had been neglected. And he wanted to restore that. We have intentionality with the wooden platform that was built. A wooden platform so everybody could not just see but hear the reading of the word. It's very similar to what we have in our church experience. We have an elevated platform to be able to make the word of God the most important thing that we want to interact with. And look, there's intentionality in verse 3. They went from morning until midday. And the word for morning there was before the sun came up. You know how you have that light before the sun peeks over the horizon? 
They're there in the, they, they're getting up in the dark in order to come to this before the sunny at first light. So around five hours, they're out there. And then we read, they stood up the whole time. That's some intentionality with that too. So there's intentionality. The word is treasured by their intentionality. The word is also treasured with their interaction. There was an interaction. They, they did not listen passively, but they were interactive with the word of God. They're listening. And as they're listening, what are they saying? Amen. Amen. They're in agreement with what is being read. And they stood. That was interactive. They stood there the whole time. They lifted their hands. Some bowed their heads. Some couldn't even stand anymore. They had to get on their face and worship on the ground. That's interactive. That's how we... I, I, um, when people are praying around me, I will interact with their prayers, even if somebody's preaching. If somebody's preaching here, you probably hear me give an amen or yes. And um, I need to do that so I continue paying attention. That's part of why I do that. I want to be interactive with it because I know my mind can wander real fast. And I'm a, I got a bad back, so I'm adjusting back and forth on my chair. And the, the interaction is for the purpose of being concentrated, but it's also the right and appropriate and correct response to hearing the word of God and hearing the preaching of the word of God. It's our response. We want to be interactive. And, and in our context, as we hear the preached word, we want to interact with that and figure out how do, how do I interact with what God is doing? Because what we believe is happening every Sunday here in our context, in our, our local expression of the body of Christ on the earth, God is speaking. We trust and we know he is speaking a word specifically to us in this moment. There are other churches meeting and they're getting different preaching going on because they have a shepherd that's shepherding them and they hear the voice. But we, we want to hear Jesus' voice for us uniquely and purposefully. That's why we need to be careful. We have such access to, we were talking about this on Wednesday morning, uh, men's training. We have such access to awesome preaching. We have such access. And we can go back and listen to people that are now on in eternity. We can, Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite preachers of all times. And we can go back and listen to his messages from the 1950s and 60s. That's pretty cool. That's really, really cool. But you know what? When I listen to that, I will be encouraged. But that perhaps is not God's word to me for how, I am in, uh, how I'm, I'm to walk with you in the body of Christ. What God is telling us, and even in this series, is that our, our building a healthy spirituality, this is so we can see it affect our own lives, but also see it in one We're looking for it in one another, and we're encouraging it in one another. We're loving one another into this healthy spirituality. I love the preaching that we have. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, because I also understand where I am on the spectrum of great preaching. I understand. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I wouldn't cross the street to hear myself preach. And there are many times I feel the exact same way. So the fact that you keep on coming is a grace to my soul. Thank you for that. But we, we want to hear God's word for us together. And we want to see it 
happen. So we want to be interactive. But there's also instruction. They're, They're treasuring the word instructively. They're sending people out into the group. So they had... They had everybody to get thousands of people, perhaps, hundreds at minimum, hundreds of people out there, and they dispatch all of them. So that could be a picture of local churches with somebody interpreting. Hey, let's give the sense. Could be a picture of small group ministry. I mean, there's just a lot of things that we can look at and say they, they sent people out to help the understanding because there were, maybe they didn't know Hebrew well enough. So they needed to be able to explain what the Hebrew words meant, what God originally meant. And maybe they didn't know the story of the Old Testament well enough, the story of God bringing his people out of Egypt. And they needed to explain that to be able to help with the context of what what they were reading. But then one of my... it's It's a favorite verse for me because it helps me understand what my job is as a pastor. In verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave... The sense. They gave the sense. They didn't give the, so what's this mean to you? We've got to be careful with that question. When we interact with the word of God, God's doing something in us that, and, and this is fun when you do this. You look at a passage of scripture together and you're interacting with it a particular way based on what God is doing in your life and you're coming to it and saying, man, I'm encouraged in this way. That doesn't mean this is what this passage means to me. You know, it means this is how I'm interacting with the passage. But when we, I mean, I was in, I was in college when this was popular. It was always, we'd read a, a verse or a passage. And it's like, all right, let's just go around. What does this verse mean to you? Careful. We are interacting with it, but we don't get to say what the meaning is. We've got to first understand the context. We've got to understand what's the background. How does this happen? Now, we have the spirit that helps us with that. The indwelling of the Spirit helps us understand His Word. But the job of pastoral ministry is to give the sense. What is God doing now? They showed how the meaning of the Word of God remains forever because He is a God that does not change. And giving the sense of the Word helps us orient our lives to God's Word rather than try to manipulate His Word to make us feel better. We don't want to orient him to us. We want to be oriented to him. And this is what we seek to do as pastors. We just want us to be looking at God all the time. The leaders, probably Levites like Ezra, were there to help give the sense, to help understand the original truth and how it applied in their present context. Context, remember, context doesn't dictate how the Bible is true or not. And we have, a, we have the pressure of a cultural context that looks at the Bible and says it's archaic, it's misogynistic, it's bigoted, we have to do away with the Bible and then figure something else out. God says, no, that's not, we, we don't allow context to dictate the truth of the Bible. God's truth, the Bible's truth is firm and it is lasting and it is timeless in its authority and it rules in the lives and over the lives of God's people. So giving the sense of the word helps us apply the word. This is how we put faith and it shows up in the feet that we walk with in our Christian life. So the the first paragraph, I think, shows us that the word of God was treasured. The second paragraph shows us that the word of God satisfies deeply. They are listening and they immediately feel conviction. There's mourning and weeping. 
It, the word brought deep conviction to the people as they listened. Uh, maybe they were sorry, simply sorry for their neglect. We have neglected the word. The years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem when the walls were broken down by King Nebuchadnezzar was marked by a blatant disregard for God's word. They didn't want God's word. And it was shown by the king Jehoiakim. Here's what Jeremiah prophesied some stuff, God's word. Here's what God's saying to you, Jehoiakim. Um, Jeremiah's servant brought that to Jehoiakim. And here's what he did with it, Jeremiah 36. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And Jehudi, Jehudi read three or four columns. The king, as he read the columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Serious. Blatant disregard for God's word. Now, I, I don't think we neglect the word quite like that. But maybe we're like, uh, remember uh, um, Josiah, the, who became king when he was eight years old, grew up and there was a priest that was kind of his fatherly figure as he was a king. And they went and <laughs> did this thing to clean up the temple. Hey, Let's get everybody together and let's start dusting things and, and making sure that the temple, they weren't even using the temple correctly. Well, as they're doing that, one of the servants goes into a storeroom, like our vault, that's just the catch basin for everything in the world in this church. We, they go in there and they find in the back, hey, what's this? They didn't even know what it was. What's this? It's a few scrolls. What was it? Oh, it's the Bible. That's kind of usually how we do things. We get busy, and then just the kind of the routine of being around the things of God, just the daily, daily tasks of life that just get to us, and we, oh, didn't get a chance to read the Bible. But then all of a sudden, we get to a point where we go, I'm not sure I remember the last time I read the Bible. See, that's what we have to be careful of. Because listen, if we're not, if we're not soaking in the truth of God's word, then our own thoughts begin to rule over us. And we can isolate ourselves, not just from people, we can isolate ourselves from God. He who, I think it's Proverbs 18.1, he who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, and listen, the second part of that, and breaks out against all sound guidance and counsel. Because we start to believe ourselves. Because you know, every argument you have in your, in your mind is right. You win all the arguments. We all win. I win every single argument in my mind. I am undefeated. So if all I have is me thinking my thoughts, and I'm not interacting with God over those, I'm going to think I'm smarter than God. But when I come to the Word, I experience a conviction that lets me know, oh, He is so great. And I, I don't want to neglect His Word. But listen, they were also sorry for their sin. They were grieved and they wept because of their own sin. This is an appropriate response to conviction. But it wasn't to be their only response. They were to move on from that. There was something better for them to see than their sin. They were to see God's grace. So where there was conviction, Nehemiah and the leaders come in and say, whoa, 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 conviction's appropriate, but don't let it rule everything. There needs to be celebration now. 
You need to celebrate what you're hearing in this word because what you're hearing from the day, man, from the earliest moments of the Bible, when God calls out to Adam after he sinned and he said, Adam, where are you? That's redemption. And so we have the story of redemption beginning that way. And he calls to his people. The cry of his people has reached him. And he goes to Moses and says, get my people out of Egypt. Now what's puzzling to us is God's patience to wait while his people were in that slavery. And the generations that died off in the wilderness, the generation that died off in the wilderness, maybe then the generations that died off in Egypt. It's like, wow, God, that, that, that shows us something about who he is. We are to celebrate who he is. They said this day is not to be marked with sorrow. It began with sorrow, but it needs to end with God's grace toward his people. It was a holy day because of what God did to forgive sin. Uh, this, when they're reading this on the, what was it? What day of the month? I forgot to write that down. The first day of the seventh month. It's the first day of the seventh month. On the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. So they're a week out from the Day of Atonement, and all of them understood when they got to Leviticus 16, as they're reading during that time frame, they're hearing, wait, the Day of Atonement is upon us. And they're recognizing all that God did to forgive their sins. And they wanted to apply the Word of God. See, application of the Word of God must begin with what God has done to save us and forgive us. Application of the Lord God cannot start with us and our ability and our motivation and our energy level and our strength. Nope. It robs joy. But application with the word of God must begin with celebrating his glorious redemption. Otherwise, we're stuck in a performance routine where we just, we never know if we do well enough for God. And then he comes to, again, one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible. And honestly, y'all, I'm still trying to figure out what this means and how to apply it in my own life. Verse, looking for it, hang with me. Verse 10. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That word strength is more akin to a cave that somebody would go hide in to avoid an enemy. But it's, I understand that part. Oh, I can hide in the Lord. It's his joy. Because you know what I sometimes struggle with? is how he can be overjoyed with me. Because I know me. I know my own brokenness. I know my sins. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of those sins by the enemy himself. And I, I, I can look at God and say, God, why would you ever love somebody so broken? Why would you love somebody that struggles and fails? And why would you do this? But you know, what I've come to understand is that we, we a lot of times will put our failures before God. And it's like when you take a coin. And if you hold a coin out... You can see everything around it, but if you bring the coin closer to yourself, you can't see anything. When you bring it closer to your eye, you can't see everything around. We sometimes will, will keep our sin and our failures before God in that way, but it's not close to him. It's close to us. We have to be able to say, no, God, I want, I want to be able to understand what you think of my sin. 
so I can see it not as the defining thing of my life. Or, hey, uh, this too, other people's sin to us. We can hold right there, but God, they did this to me. They did this to me. They did this to me. God is saying, look, I want you to know not what has happened to you or, or what you have done. I want you to know what I have done. And that's the joy that was set before Jesus when he endured the cross. He was looking at all the Father would accomplish. He was looking at the inheritance that he would get. And that inheritance is us. It's everybody that would call out to him for salvation. And so he's able to walk through the most horrific event in all of human history, the cross itself. When Nehemiah gets to the people, he's encouraging them, hey, get your eyes off of your own sinfulness. Get them on to recognizing the great joy in God's plan of redemption. They were to look at all God has done for them. So so they could be heavenward. And they can see a sovereign God ruling and reigning over all. But also to hear this. To have God's booming voice over us say, and us be convinced of it and hear it as the only thing that we hear, I love you. This is true for us. We, we, want, we, we want to be convicted about our sin. And we are grieved and saddened and we weep over the sins of others. But that sadness and that mourning should not grow to be bigger than who God is. Nehemiah told the people to move on from their mourning. They needed to find the joy in God's glory being done on the earth as it had been promised and accomplished already in the heavens. They needed to see God more than seeing themselves. They needed to see his glorious splendor. We need to see his glorious splendor so his joy really is felt in us. So we can experience his joy as our strength. I've shared this quote several times with us. But Robert Murray McShane has a, a wonderful caption that helps us look to God so we can experience his joy. He says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. That's our task, church. Live much in the smiles of God. Psalm 40, I think around verse 6, says he, he has many thoughts of us. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Live much in the smiles of God. Amen? Man, that's, that's what we need. And then closing out the chapter with the last uh, paragraph, we have the Feast of Booths, which uh, when God 
inaugurated all the festivals in the book of Leviticus. Uh, the Day of Atonement happened, and a week later is the Feast of Booths. So they, they want to apply the Word of God. They're hearing the Word of God, and they want to apply it. And what we see with the festivals is the Word now is in retrospect. They're looking back in order to look forward. So they look back, and the festivals were God's built-in mechanism for his people to remember him. When they got to a festival, they had to remember what God did because every festival, especially the booths, was to have his people remember how he protected them in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. Out in between Egypt and, and, and the promised land, they were in the wilderness for that 40 years and they lived in tents. They lived in booths. So he says, remember how I provided for you. And so it's, it's a, a built-in mechanism to remember his word and his faithfulness. And we need those mechanisms in our own lives. Uh, interestingly, I found this interesting myself, uh, so you might or not. Uh, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths was at the beginning. It, it was right at the end of a year, beginning of a new year. So as we're coming to the end of a year and anticipating a new year, here's what a task, I'm going to task myself with this, because this has been a hard year for me just been hard in many different ways. Lost my father in March, and it's just been hard, coupled with other things. So I, I'm challenged in applying this. I want to I be able to recall God's faithfulness because a lot of times, especially when I think of this year, I think of, I think of the, the drain of what this year has been. And so I need to do a task this week of recalling his faithfulness. What can I be grateful for this year? So I, I'm going to write a list, and I'm going to check it twice. Because I want to see God's faithfulness. I'm going to check it three times. I'm going to check it four times. I thought about maybe gathering my family together and say, all right, all of us, we've had, we've, had, we've had some mountaintops, but most of us, especially in our family, it's been mostly valleys this year. But God's still been faithful. And I want to be able to draw my attention to that faithfulness. And so maybe there's, there's, there's moments in your year now, in, in your walk with the Lord, that you're making, you're writing these things down. Like, God, you, you answered this prayer. Or I, I, when I should have been despairing, I was full of faith. Those are the things that show us. When we look back at God's faithfulness, we look around at our lives now and how God is being faithful, it gives us faith to look forward toward his faithfulness, right? Because he's been gracious for us in our past, we can anticipate a future grace. He's going to be there for us as we continue to walk for him. And that's what the festival was about. It was God has done this. He is keeping us. He will keep us as we go onward for him. And what I, what I love how this chapter ends in verse 17. Now, I, I find it shocking that from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day of people of Israel had not done so. That's wild. That's a long time. Because Moses gave the command to do the booths. And then he dies in Moab before they enter the promised land with Joshua. So there's been neglect for a long time. But then look, they all go, there was... Very great rejoicing. Oh, that, that that would be the mark of our spirituality. 
individually, as a church, as we seek to honor the word and the glory of God in our midst, to have very great rejoicing. And what I love about where this, this whole chapter took place was at the Watergate. Not 1974. <laughs> or two. What was it? Yeah, two, because it's for the election. Different Watergate. Better. This was a Watergate that demonstrated what? Where does God's nourishment come from? It comes from his word. So we feast on his word. In John 7, when Jesus was, it was during the Feast of Booths. On seven days, somebody carries a couple of the priests, the high priest would carry a couple of water through the people and they would recognize and remember God is our water. He, he's the one that made water come from the rock in the wilderness experience. That's why we sang about the rock won't move because he's nourishing us. They, they sing and, and to demonstrate the water from the rock. And Jesus, on the eighth day, because on the eighth day, they didn't go there. On the eighth day, he stands up and says, anybody, you thirsty? Look at what he says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now that takes the authority of God to stand up. Because look what happens, the last verse. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Solemn. They were, they were kept. They were contemplative. They were meditating. They were quiet. And on the quiet day, Jesus stands up points to himself. You thirsty? Believe in me. And out of you will come rivers of living water. What I forgot to put in this, I'm just remembering. When Jesus says his prayer, uh, two things in John. When he's talking about abiding in chapter 15 in John, and then in 17, when he is uh, uh, praying for the disciples. Look, he's, he's using joy in there. Abide in me and I'm going to be in you. We're in the Father. And he says this, that to the Father when he's praying, that our joy may be complete. God's, God's joy is about us understanding and seeing his love and his pleasure over us and his joy that he sings over us. Zephaniah 3.17, he sings loudly over us. He sings wonderfully and beautifully. That's what he thinks of us. And then he says, look, the way this happens, because the Spirit's going to be in you, and that's going to be nourishing. But we, we want to tap into that by going to the Scriptures, by loving the scriptures. That's how we get to that great rejoicing. We need to have our own uh, a feast of booths, so to speak, where we're, rec- we're recalling and we, we want to remember because God's water gate in our lives is the scriptures. It's us coming together and the centrality of how we gather to be encouraged and to encourage one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for the reminder of your love. You are are a wonderful God. You are a loving God. You are a patient God. 
And, and miraculously, you call us to participate in your glory spreading on this earth. I pray we would be obedient to it, but I pray, God, that our obedience would be out of the overflowing, everlasting joy that you have over us. Please help us. Holy Spirit, fill us with joy that it truly will be our strength. And may, may it be the mark of our spirituality. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all right now, our commission is a joyful commission. Right? So much. Go therefore in joy and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless us. See you on Christmas Eve. If not, Merry Christmas.